0: Hello, Leading Women. As promised, we're kicking off several episodes in which we've brought in some amazing women to share their expertise at the intersection of one of the five elements of well-being and leadership. Today, I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Kimberly Davis as we talk about a topic that I know many of us would rather avoid, our finances, and the particular steps that we need to take as female leaders to thrive in terms of our financial well-being. In addition to having a fascinating life and career journey, Kimberly has more than 25 years of finance, legal, and corporate experience and is currently a managing director partner at the Bonson Group. She is also a certified divorce financial analyst focusing on helping women transition to financial independence after life-altering events such as death or divorce. She's the host of The Fiscal Feminist, a podcast and platform about women and their relationship with money and finance. Her mission is to help women of all ages and wealth levels embrace their responsibility to themselves to achieve solid financial footing in both calm and turbulent times. Not only that, she has a new book coming out at the end of May called The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. In which she provides guidance with thoughtful strategies pertaining to personal finance, advocating for yourself, negotiating a raise, retirement planning, buying property, making investments, managing relationships with others, preparing for marriage and the creation of prenuptial agreements, navigating divorce, and estate planning. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kimberly today, but first, in case you're brand new here, here's a little bit about me and Moms That Lead. Are you feeling stuck in your leadership or life, like each day is a repeat of the one before it? Is your health and well-being suffering as a result? Or maybe you're feeling like you finally have the opportunity to make the impact that you've been longing for, but want to make sure you're honing your leadership skills and focusing on your well-being so that this high will last. Either way, I'm here for you. I'm Terry Schmidt, your host and leadership mentor. I'm a corporate leader and coach turned nonprofit founder with over 20 years experience developing others toward their full potential. At Moms That Lead, we know that leadership is not about position and that moms have a unique ability to lead and inspire others in all of their circles. We're here to help you thrive so that you can make the impact you long for in your workplace, community, and family. So if you're ready to ditch mom guilt and activate your strengths, let's jump in. Well, welcome, Kim. It's great to have you on today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
1: Thanks, Terry, for having me. I think what you're doing is great and uh, very meaningful and purposeful. So I'm glad I can be a part of it and hopefully have something worthwhile to contribute to the conversation.
0: Oh, definitely. Well,
1: why don't we start with just
0: I'd love to hear a little bit from your perspective about your story of how you got to where
1: you are today? Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny, because I've been thinking a lot lately about the why, my why. Mm-hmm. And I think as you take your journey through life, um, and you go through different seasons, you know, there's always a, a why that might be different for a different point in your life, right? Mm-hmm. So um Like you, I'm a mom, but my children are all older now. They're 31, 29, and 28. The 31-year-old's getting married in October. It's very exciting. And so, you know, my being a mom and what I went through in my journey being a mom is a lot of why I'm here today, doing what I'm doing with this fiscal feminist platform and why I wrote this book that's coming out in May called The Fiscal Feminist, The Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. It's really a labor of love, but It all started, I mean, I was a lawyer and a banker in the 1980s, so I was kind of on the precipice of the, you know, feminist movement when Mm -hmm. people were going to work, and when I came out of, I went to Georgetown Law School, and when I came out of law school, went to this big New York firm, the first firm I worked at, I was the only woman in my class that Mm -hmm. was hired, so it was the early days, right? People, you know, could say all kinds of crazy stuff and do crazy stuff, there was no gender, discrimination or harassment no one you know there was like no filter back then mm-hmm. and I did enjoy being a lawyer you know I'm a very analytical person and I enjoyed having the independence of you know my my career and all that I hadn't really contemplated what was going to happen if I ever got married and had kids I didn't really kind of think about it at that moment you know I was what I started doing it when I was 24 so it was I was kind of caught up in that moment of you know I guess feminism I wasn't a bra burner or anything. But you know, I believed in being independent and having my own career. Mm -hmm. So I went from being a lawyer to being a banker, because I did prefer the um, kind of mathematical aspect of things more than, you know, writing long documents and staying up all night doing that. And then I got married, which was awesome. And I had my three children two years apart. So at that point was, again, the first choice, you know, Mm -hmm. do I be a stay at home mom? Do I go back some of the time. Now, we lived in New York City, and we had moved to Westchester County, so there was a commute time in there. And my husband also had a pretty demanding job. He was also a a guy who became, who was a lawyer, who became a banker. And um, it really was a decision that I wasn't prepared to even contemplate, because there weren't that many people ahead of me that I could look to for this, right? So I actually, after a lot of contemplation, And I don't know if I'd make the same decision now with twenty twenty hindsight, but I became, you know, full-time stay-at-home mom, which was awesome. I mean, I, I enjoyed, I look back to those days and I feel privileged that I had that, that ability to do that. However, it came at great personal sacrifice down the road. And so ultimately what happened was my ex-husband was asked to move to London. It was supposed to be for two years, ended up, he still lives there 20 some Mm -hmm. years ago, I think he's almost lived there 30 years now. And and I really didn't want to do that, right? Because we lived in Westchester, my parents were in Pennsylvania, they could come and help with the kids. And, you know, I had my life, I was president of the Junior League, and it was all those things. And then I had thought, well, eventually, when my third child, you know, got to be going to school in some way, I can start working again in some capacity. So I agreed to move to London, because I was pressured into doing that. And I don't, think I would have ever agreed to that now. Or if I had, I would have done certain things that were more strategically oriented to protect myself. But no one talked about that stuff back then. I didn't have a prenup or anything like that. So anyway, we moved to London. And, you know, I was there for almost 14 years, I couldn't really do what I did for a living there. So I was constantly trying to find a purpose outside being, you know, just not just a mom, but being a mom, I wanted Mm -hmm. to have a career. So I started a fashion business. I was fashion designer. I was the creative vision for that. And I became a fashion manufacturer of clothing, which was something I wasn't expecting. Uh-huh. I really didn't expect it to become what it was. We ended up selling the clothes to Saks Fifth Avenue. We were in their 10 best stores. Huh. So this little thing that I started at my kitchen table ended up being like, what? I have employees and I have to learn about manufacturing clothes. Uh-huh. Oops! I got. <laughs> when we got the first order, I, I didn't know whether to be happy or sad because I was like, oh, I've never done this before. And now I have to manufacture a bunch of clothes in different sizes and make sure they're perfectly packaged and everything so Saks will pay me. And it was kind of funny, but I did it. I realized that my passion for clothes is really in me buying them for myself and not making them uh-huh. and running a company. But I did learn a lot from that experience, which really has helped me throughout my life and other areas as I kind of went through my journey. And then I also uh, helped to develop a school there that is now a big school. It's a, what they would call state school. What what we would refer to as a public school. I'm very passionate about education. Education changed my life. I, I did not come from a lot of money. I'm from Pittsburgh, not, you know, the fancy part and, you know, just getting into Georgetown and going to Georgetown law school literally kind of changed my entire reality. Mm-hmm. So I, and my kids have had the privilege of more, you know, private education and all that stuff in England. But I really wanted to do something for what we would call public school there. So I actually was part of a four-person team. And we literally built the school in conjunction with the government from the ground up. And it's still there. And it's been expanded. And Gordon Brown opened it because he was prime minister at the time. And it was an awesome experience. I didn't make tons of money doing it, but it was one of the most gratifying things. I also was the cheerleading coach there. So I brought cheerleading (laughs) to Swindon in England uh, and I mentored, you know, eight or nine kids and it really was super gratifying. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as time went on, I realized that the marriage was starting to deteriorate. I did not want to grow old and nothing against England. I love England. I'm married again to an English guy. But the point is, is that I didn't want to grow old there. I wanted to come back to the United States. So I made a very bold decision. Because my children were then old enough to make a decision themselves without any prevention where they wanted to go. My eldest daughter at that point had gotten into Georgetown undergrad. And so uh, she went there and my two children who were in high school came with me and I moved to California. And I didn't know anybody here, hmm. but I knew I needed a change because I knew that this was that I had kind of hit a wall. Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. very difficult decision to make, because we had been married for over 20 years. And, you know, it, like I was petrified by this decision. So, so I moved to California. And it was at that point, I, you know, why the why of why I'm here started to evolve, which was we then started to engage in our divorce proceedings, which went on for several years. And the first decree came down, which was great. I got my alimony, child support for the children to carry on living their lives and Remember, we're still trying to get acclimated in the United States because they mm-hmm. have pretty much grown up in England. But then everything went south. And six months after that decree, without getting into the specifics, my ex-husband literally stopped paying alimony, mm-hmm. stopped paying for education, just stopped. He just stopped. And it it was very, very frightening for me. And I was petrified because I was paying rent on a house. I had kids in private school. I hadn't started working yet because I was still trying to get my children organized, get myself organized. So long story short, there was a long backward and forward and second court case. And all of that takes time, right? That takes years. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, I, I got like an interim order that he had to give me something. So we weren't going to be, you know, living on the street because The outgoings for the tuition were high and I didn't really want to upset the apple cart and put them into another school again. So I really it was like a bullhorn in my ear, like you need to go get a job right now. There is no more time, no more like entrepreneurial endeavors. You need to go get a paycheck health and, you know, health insurance and all that stuff. So getting a job became my job. Mm -hmm. So I was at the time, I was a 55 year old woman. So not a lot of people clamoring to, you know, to hire a 55 year old woman, like, Hey, let's hire her. (laughs) Even if I do have a good resume and I worked in all kinds of places, they're like, yeah, we get some younger and cooler and more energetic people. I would dispute the energetic part. But anyway, (laughs) so after literally interviewing and applying for over a hundred jobs and a lot of rejection. I got a job with Morgan Stanley uh, as a financial advisor, and that was the beginning of my growth and my self-realization in this, I'll call it third act of my life. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many more acts I have. So I, I, you know, I experienced a gray divorce, which is something that a lot of women go through and it has a long reach into their financial lives over their Mm -hmm. the course of their life, way into their retirement. And I, you know, I had to, Claw my way out because you know there was a lot of stuff that went on, and I just did not have a lot of access to money anymore. And I'd gone from having this, you know, pretty fancy life to not, to literally living paycheck to paycheck, selling jewelry. You know, I'm a pretty resourceful gal. So I did what I had to do to get through it. So the job was great. I got the job. I figured it was kind of a great mixture of my legal background, my investment banking background and my ability to like network because I love people. And in my other jobs, I didn't really interface with people so much. It was more like transactional. So it was, it, it was actually a divine, I don't know whether it was divine intervention or just like applying for over hundred jobs. And I finally found the right one, but I persevered and, and actually, so through becoming a wealth advisor and building up my practice, I joined the Bonson group. I I was partnering with David at Morgan Stanley, and then we left Morgan Stanley and started our own uh, independent advisory group, of which now I'm a managing director and partner, and it was David, Brian, Robert, and I. Now we have over 44 people in our group. We have multiple locations, and we have really grown exponentially, and I, over the last eight or nine years, have really you know, grown my book of business. So when I was doing this business and interfacing with women, and I have clients that are men and women, but my passion is for women right I'm a woman I've, I've been a stay-at-home mom I've been a wife I've been an ex-wife I've had a divorce I've been an entrepreneur I've been an employee and I understand that women have a lot of other issues that men don't have it's just a fact I'm not saying uh, anything I'm not there's no political aspect of that it's just a fact right so I got it in my head that I didn't want anyone to ever go through. What I went through, Mm -hmm. I lived Mm -hmm. in fear for five or six years where I woke up every morning at 3am and I couldn't go back to sleep because I literally did not know what was going to happen next and what was going to happen to me and my kids. And I don't want anyone to be in that position. Mainly, I don't want any woman to be in that position. And so that was the kernel of this. I thought, you know, I have a lot of great clients. These are usually pretty wealthy people and not that they don't have problems, but they do have some security through their wealth. But I want to help people who don't have all that wealth, you know, Mm -hmm. a, a regular woman and or man, if he wants to read my stuff, you know, who's out there trying to like just live on their paycheck, support their family, make these hard decisions, figure out career choices and all the other plethora of things that women have to think about. And that's how I started writing blogs just on topics I was interested in. And from there, I I decided, you know, maybe I'd start doing podcasts. And then from there, I thought, you know what, I want to kind of establish this as a platform. Uh, so we got into, you know, I started to get into social media, which has been very robust. And then I wrote a book about it. And now I have a website that we just launched last week, which wow. I want to be like a collaborative learning tool for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, this has really become like my passion. I mean, mm-hmm. I still have my wealth management business and I, I'm, you know, I do that every single day of my life and it's very important. I love my clients and I'm still you know, in the mix with that. And these two go together. My expertise comes from my knowledge as a wealth manager, especially when it comes to investing in personal finance. So that's how I am where I am today. I am passionate. I know my why. I want to help one woman. If it's only one woman, hopefully more, just be strategic and not make the mistakes that I made. Yeah.
0: I love that. What What a journey. And I love that, you know, throughout your journey, I see You gaining expertise in different areas, but not being satisfied, just keeping that expertise for yourself, not being satisfied, just using it for your own benefit, but really that drive to share it. And and particularly, even when you go or went through a hard time, taking what you learned from that combined with your expertise to help make sure that other women don't have to have as many struggles as you did if they're in a similar situation.
1: And I think we have to help each other, right? Mm -hmm. Because not only in the day to day, like, because it's, we have very complicated lives, especially if, you know, we are caregivers, whether it's for children or for, you know, I'm in the sandwich generation. I talk about that. I have my children, you know, now they're older and they're pretty independent, but Hey, I'm still their mom and they still go through stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And they still need some assistance at some points. And, you know, you know how it is. I mean, we were all 20 something. (laughs) We still have problems. I was still bugging my parents when I was in my fifties. So, you know, and now my parents are very old and my mom has dementia and just the caregiving aspect. Like I go back to Pittsburgh every six weeks. I'm still trying to manage a team of caregivers there, the stress of it all. Every single morning I'm interacting with people about this before I start my day. We as women, whether people want to accept it or not, 75% of caregiving is done by women. Mm. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. So that puts a layer of compl- you know complication on how women can achieve their goals in the professional realm of their life if they want to do that. And then also how they are strategic in protecting themselves when they do give up certain things. And we mm-hmm. can get into that later. But yeah. back in the 80s, no one talked about any of this stuff. It was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to get married when I'm 28 or 29, because if I don't, everyone's going to think I'm a spinster, even back then. <laughs> you know, I I know this sounds really weird, this is complete non sequitur, but sometimes I I I watch Seinfeld because, you know, huh. back in the 90s, and it was oh, yeah. like, it came out. But when I watch the ones from like the late 80s and the 90s, I think, oh my God, this is so dated. Like some of the stuff they say, is just like, yeah, that's exactly how we thought back then. You know, like they told me at the law firm I was at. If I wanted to have a kid or a second kid, I could forget about being partner. They actually said those words to wow. me. They, they said that. They said, we can't expect the men to not, you know, you're not going to be able to work as many hours as the men. And, and so we can't give you any like extra, you know, extra leeway there. So unless you can compete, you know, we're not going to penalize them and say, well, you get, you don't have to work as many hours to become a partner. <sighs> so it's unlikely, you know. And it is like, okay, well, I guess that's why even to this day, my daughter works in a big law firm in New York City, and they still basically have very few women partners. They Uh have slightly more, but not when you think 20, 30 years later, they should have a a lot more, but they don't because it's it's still one of those things that the anachronistic views of our society are so entrenched in our heads that it is both men and women, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's such a shame because we've we've talked on other episodes about the benefits that you get from being in the caregiving role, and those benefits that you can then deliver to your workplace. And because that makes you,
1: you a better leader, exactly. That's Why? Because you have empathy, right? And you listen because your kids right. make you listen to them, even when you <laughs> don't want to. Women, when they run businesses, have proven that the, those businesses are. for the most part are generally more successful and diversification with women on boards as well as proven that. And I don't, I don't think that people, and also the multitasking aspect of things, Mm -hmm. you know, you think of all the different roles you're playing as a mom, as a caregiver, and then you're trying to do all the other stuff. So you have to have good time management skills or everything will be a mess. And all of those things translate into the workplace Right. But we need to kind of organize ourselves and understand that the government isn't going to fix this for us. It's going to be one woman at a time mm-hmm. supporting each other and initiating change, whether it's on a micro level within mm-hmm. our own lives, helping each other or on a macro level in how we vote in what we get involved in and, and actually talking about this. I personally am a little afraid that this message is getting uh, sidelined because there's so many other issues in the world right now, Mm -hmm. and so many other groups now that quite rightly are trying to, you know, get their point of view out there. But I think this message has kind of lost some of its steam. And I worry about that. I, I think
0: what you are doing in your work with the Fiscal Feminist and with the book and the platform is so important and really is one way that we can, as women, band together and hopefully make some changes that need to happen because i think if you have female leaders who are looking into and after their well-being in all different aspects that you then become more powerful leaders and and speaking of that i know i saw in your book that you said fiscal or financial well-being is linked to intentional self-care all the things that we do to remain holistically meaning physically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually healthy is linked to that. So I'd I'd love to hear from your perspective. In your opinion, what do you think it looks like when someone is thriving in terms of financial well being?
1: Well, I mean, the thing is, we got to start with our own house, right? Our own person. So you you get yourself together. And then once you're together, you can help other people be together. Mm -hmm. So you got to get your own infrastructure in place. So that's something that, you know, I my goal is for every woman to be in control of their own financial reality and destiny. So how do they get there? How how does that happen? And I think the first thing is I want to under I want people to understand when I say financial independence, it doesn't mean oh you can retire at forty and kick back and play golf every day, and get your nails done, do whatever <laughs> people do when they're not working. I have no idea what that is, but. That's not what I mean. What I mean is you have the ability to live through the ups and downs and the roller coaster of life without being in constant fear. Mm -hmm. You know, you have, you understand your financial situation. You opened your eyes. You weren't afraid to confront it and evaluate it and look at it. You have a strategy in place. You've done all the things that you need to do to be organized and you don't have massive debt. And then you give yourself some space so that if there is a problem, you can deal with it without every the whole house of cards coming down. If you want to change your career, you have time to pivot, go back to school or explore entrepreneurship as a side hustle, whatever it is, but it gives you the independence to make choices and not be controlled by situations or controlled by other people. Mm-hmm. So that to me is the you know, you want to live your life within reasonable parameters but you want to always be able to breathe. Mm -hmm. I think when people are financially stressed and worried, the stress of finances, it just, it will just seep into all other parts of your life. Mm -hmm. You will be unhealthy. You will have high blood pressure. You will not be able to get a sentence out of your mouth because you'll be so concerned that, you know, you're going to be living on the street soon, whatever it is. And that just goes through the whole rest of your life. So for me, I, I hate to say that money, you know, is the main focus of all of our lives, but it is the, you know, it is the oil, the grease, whatever that keeps mm-hmm. the, the, the wheels turning. If we don't have it, it means that every other part of our life is affected by it. Yeah. So I don't say we need to worship it. I think we need to know how to not let it control us and not be afraid of it. So I want people to take steps that are often uncomfortable in the short term. These are things that you don't want to think about. They are not fun. You, you, these are the things that everyone just would rather do anything, but look (sighs) at and realize that it isn't really that bad. It's just really math, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and then embrace it because when you, when you get on a roll, it's kind of like, you know, when you start working out again, the first couple of times it sucks, it's hard, your heart rates up, you're tired, you'd rather be doing anything else. You're like every minute of the workout is like, is this over yet? That's (laughs) how this is. I kind of think about, I always want to say to people, be a financial athlete, right? It's going to start off being hard. But once you get in the groove of it, you're going to really, you're going to be like, okay, I've got my budgeting thing set up. It's on automation. I have a really good app. I know how much money's coming in every month. I know how much money's going out every month. I'm in control of these two very... Uh, it's just a number, but that those two numbers can really help you figure out a game plan that can really be expansive to not only your career and your bottom line, but to the moves that you can make throughout life. You don't need to make billions of dollars to have a fruitful life. If you know what you're making, you can work within those parameters, mm-hmm. but knowledge is power. And as I say a lot in my book, ignorance is not bliss. <laughs> and you know, it's just easy to float through life. It's kind of like, when you drive your car, right? When you're on autopilot and you're driving the car and you're thinking about your groceries or you're thinking about working out or what you got to do today and you're just driving your car. You cannot do that with your finances. It's just not cool. Mm -hmm. It's going to be your undoing. And I think a lot of women are busy, right? And I write about this in my book too. We're just busy doing whatever we're doing. If we're moms, we're busy taking care of our family. If we're working, we're busy doing our profession. And we get so busy that we don't think about these really kind of infrastructure things that are important to our lives. So that's to me what being a thriving, you know, thriving in your financial life is, is just having knowledge, not being afraid to talk about the uncomfortable things, taking action by, you know, getting your personal finances in order through budgeting and debt reduction and, retirement investing and pre, pre, you know, premarital planning and all the things that are going to affect your finances over the course of your life. And just having some breathing room because you're being proactive.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what would you say if there's a woman out there who is just kind of avoiding this, you know, like you mentioned, doesn't, just wants to pretend like like things are working and you know the car is running down the road and we're thinking about other things what what would be the first steps that you propose for a woman to really think about and improve her financial well-being
1: so on a just a day-to-day level i would say the first thing every person in the world needs to do especially women is you need to have a budget mm-hmm. that's like the very first thing you do is create a budget and a budget is essentially just How much money do you make? How much money do you spend? When you know those two things, you know a lot about yourself. You know, this world is a world in which it's very easy to spend money. You and I can go online and we can be, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, whatever you read, and there's a billion things that are gonna be flashing at you. Like buy this, buy that. You bought one thing at Nordstrom's and all of a sudden, Nordstrom's will pop up forever and a day while you're trying to read an article. And they even have these things now that come in at you and in and out. And like really want to get your attention. So they, you know, the, you know, the the world is against us, right. They want us to spend money and it's constantly popping up. So a lot of times people will buy things online and they forgot they even bought them, you know, until they get delivered. Mm -hmm. So I would say the easiest way to do it, like you can budget with an Excel spreadsheet or there's a million, you know, apps and, uh, things that you can do manually if you want. But the easiest for me, I think, is you get an app that's for free and there are a lot of different ones. I've used Mint. Um, I think Mint is a good one, but I talk about a lot of other ones in my book.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: you know, everything that you have can get linked into the app, right? So you can link your bank account you can you know, link your, your credit cards and so on and so forth. So when your paycheck comes in, you see it, and then and then it will categorize how you're spending the money. It will give you alerts if you set an alert up for, oh my God, I'm spending more than I should. Mm-hmm. And then it will help you get the picture of where you're at. So I think once you have a budget and you can, like I said, you, there are many ways to do it, but an organic budget that you can kind of check in, look at your phone and say, okay, this is where I'm at today. This is how much money I have left until I get paid again. Then you can then go to the next step, which is if you have credit card debt, you need to start eliminating the credit card debt. You know, just, it just really is going to be a problem. It will seep into everything. It will keep you from going ahead. And I know people like to, you know, do points and all that. And that's, that's very good. You know, obviously if you want to get points and things to that nature, you go ahead and do that but you need to pay the bill off every month if you've mm-hmm. got so you can't really move ahead until you pay the credit card debt off mm-hmm. and there are ways to do that you know there are different methods in, in how to effectively do that and I do talk about that in the book too when you're doing a budget know what's coming in but then know what your fixed costs are so what are my living expenses to keep a roof over my head you know to keep the, the lights on and all that kind of stuff. And then the other thing would be, what are your discretionary expenses? Because that's where you can really make some moves about how you really want to change your life. Mm-hmm. And then as far as, um, you know, eliminating debt, you know, they have different ways of doing it. You know, you can, they have what they call the debt av- avalanche method and they have the debt snowball method, all these things you can explore. But the point is, is whatever way works for you to keep reducing your debt down, pursue that. And then once you get your debt eliminated, then you have to work on building up your emergency fund that will give you, I always like to focus on six months. Maybe that's a little draconian. Some people will say three, because that's how many months the Census Bureau says people are unemployed, mm. but I, I like six just because I can breathe mm-hmm. knowing I have six months because a lot of stuff doesn't get resolved in three months, at least not in my life. So um I would say you have six months of emergency money to cover your expenses um, so that you have a little bit of wiggle room there. And that is sacred. You never touch that. And I don't like to invest that money. I think that should stay in cash. And then once you get to that point, you start thinking about investing. I, you know, tell people always max out on your 401k. That's you know that's really tax-free investment so it's very efficient and then once you do that then you can start investing in other kind of taxable investments like mm-hmm. you know stocks bonds and things to that nature so i think the first thing is you know get your budget in order but the very first thing is just before you even get into all the other stuff just get your budget in order and, and once you have the knowledge of what's coming in and what's going out and if you see there's a deficit every month and you're covering it with your credit cards then you know that you're living outside your means Mm -hmm. and you're going to have to rail it in and, or decide that you might want to make more money. And that, you know, so you have variable, you have uh, variable things you can work with, right? Make more money, spend less money, Mm -hmm. but, you know, and sometimes this is a harsh reality and it's uncomfortable, but in the short term, if you make those changes, when you start seeing that you're not in debt, and you see your emergency fund and you see that you're starting to save some money, that's gonna make you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: gonna the, the 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 ability to feel that comfort and security is gonna outweigh any fear that you have in confronting this because it will change your life. It really will change your life. And then the other thing I would say to people who are starting out, it's not only just, you know, the budget is your micro. Plan It's for your day-to-day life, but also thinking about your career choices, you know, what kind of career are you choosing? Is it more of a, you know, through COVID, we saw some careers were more bulletproof than others.
0: Mm -hmm. Really
1: think intentionally about what you're going to do with your life. Is it a kind of company where you see management that accommodates women, that has good policies for parents, you know, do your investigative work. Don't just kind of, you know, go along and say, yeah, I'll take that job. I mean, you know, in the short term, if you need money, but when you're really thinking about your career choices, I think you need to be very intentional and very investigative. And then I also think once you get involved, or even when you're starting to apply for jobs, you need to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. Many women don't negotiate. A lot of women never negotiate. They leave a lot of money on the table and it literally filters through the rest of their life to how much money they have in retirement. Most women are going to probably make, you know, and I, and I have a quote in my book. I don't, I don't have it here, but to mine, but you know, they definitely make a lot less than men because they don't negotiate that then leaves them with hundreds of thousands of dollars less in retirement because Mm -hmm. of all the years of making less money. So we're our own worst, you know, people here, because if we were advocating and pushing for more money, then maybe we'd get it. But instead, we kind of let them say, okay, we're going to pay you less. And then that just, Keeps the whole thing viciously going around and around. Yeah. Yeah. I love those practices,
0: both the practical ones that we can do day to day, as well as thinking about the future and how we're going to act. I think you hit on so much. The financial well being is about having that room to breathe, like you said, and it filters into all other elements in a leader's life. Um, Because once you have that room to breathe, then you are feeling better about everything else and not having the negative health impacts that you mentioned and other impacts. So I think you've given us a lot to think about, a lot to start on. I'd love to hear as you deal with women in particular, are there particular challenges from a financial well-being perspective that you see they face as opposed to maybe some of your male clients or, or males that you work with?
1: hundred percent. And it's, it's uh, again, not just the women I work with, just my, you know, general observations. I mean, mm-hmm. again, I think it all goes back to the fact that we still have some very embedded traditional gender roles in society in our head. We often have an anachronistic view of things we're evolving, but some of these things still hold women back. For example, well, you know, just remember in 1976, if you were a married woman, you couldn't get a credit card on your own. You needed your husband to sign for you, or you needed a brother to sign for you. I worked with a woman at Morgan Stanley who um, was older than me. And she got an, a job offer to be a financial advisor in 1977. And she could not accept the job until her husband signed a permission saying it was okay by him. Oh. That was that long ago okay so a lot of this stuff is still filtering through for example and this is very much for women there's a motherhood penalty right and this is a fact women women's earnings drop by four percent for each child they have whereas men's income increases by six percent for each child they have hmm. Well, that's a particular problem for women, Mm -hmm. right? Employers, I think, still cling to this traditional notion that men are the providers for their families and that they should be and that women are the caregivers who are going to stay home. And that's just not true because, you know, 30% of primary breadwinners in this country are women. Hmm. And so, again, I've said this in numerous interviews and things before, but the workplace and society expects women to work like they don't have kids, and to be moms like they don't work. Mm -hmm. That is an impossible equation. Nobody can do that. And to have that expectation is just unrealistic and sets women up for complete and utter defeat. And then, you know, feeling like they're never they're never doing as much as they could be doing on any front. And that's Mm -hmm. just not fair. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that I think is really also unfortunate is I think a, a lot of The stigma in the workplace is that women who have children are not as devoted to their jobs and they aren't as dedicated workers. And I actually think that's the opposite. I think they probably try harder just to kind of overcome that stigma. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a problem that they have to deal with. And then the second problem that kind of flows from that is that, and I can't, you know, I find it unbelievable, but that. There are statistics that that say, you know, women who are the primary breadwinners are often embarrassed by that, and they Hmm. don't really want to admit it. And so, you know, they said, I, I read a Census Bureau study that said that in 2018, in heterosexual marriages, women who were primary breadwinners often would say they made one... 0.5% less than they did and said their husbands made 2.6% more than they did to kind of fit into that traditional norm that they weren't the primary breadwinner. And so that is very interesting to me because I want women to, it's okay to be the primary breadwinner. I'm the primary breadwinner in my current marriage. Somehow that still is something that women have to deal with. And I think because of that, we have to Change that attitude. We have to embrace our success, and we have to make noises in the workplace and politically that it's not cool to discriminate against mothers in the workplace. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that means changing laws or you know looking for companies that don't do that kind of thing. So there have been companies that have made some changes, like Adobe, J and J. But you need to do your research because not all companies are created equal, and mm-hmm. some still have a very big you know bro kind of mentality going on there. So it's really up to us to be responsible in finding our place so that we can have the kind of life that we want. And that and that means embracing our success as well. So I think the other thing we have to do is also understand that there is an invisible labor that women do as caregivers um, and mothers often, and that doesn't ever get accommodated for. And I mean this in the course of relationships, whatever whatever your partnership is, If one of you is going to step back to take care of children or others, whether it's part-time or full-time, that needs to be taken care of in some sort of agreement, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a cohabitation agreement or a prenup agreement. Now, you know, I, I think everybody, I know people say, well, they're expensive. Okay, you can, you know. They aren't as enforceable if you do them yourself and they are expensive, but simple ones aren't as expensive, but in the long run, that expense may really, really be important in saving your bacon. Mm-hmm. So I say to women, and again, I'm not trying to take anything away from stay at home dads, stay at home dads. If you're listening, this applies to you too. But I say to women, cause I like to focus on women that, you know, if you're going to stay at home. Then you should, before you make that decision and before you even get married, you should say to your partner, okay, whoever's going to stay at home, is going to stop contributing to their 401k. They're going to stop contributing to social security because they're not going to be working as much or at all. So that means their retirement funding is going to go down the tubes. It it may mean that you can do a spousal IRA, but that's going to be nominal compared to if you had a 401k with Mm -hmm. a match. So the long-term effect of that is going to be very long reaching into your personal retirement as a woman. And then the third thing is, is that you are losing your career development, right? Even if you're doing a part-time or you're not doing it at all, you're you're not getting the enjoyment and the benefit of the growth of your career. So when I think about prenups, and I'm starting to talk a lot to divorce lawyers and you know people that do prenups, family law people, and, they, and this idea I think is getting traction. Um, is that You need to quantify that in your prenup mm-hmm. and say, okay, you know, I'm going to, if I'm out for this many years, I would be contributing this amount to my 401k. I would be also, I'm going to be doing the invisible labor that if you hired a nanny and a housekeeper and a cook would be equivalent to this amount of money. You can come up with, a, with some sort of solution. Otherwise, you know, maybe you'll get a quadro in divorce. Maybe you won't, which is when you split a 401k, mm-hmm. that's not part of the divorce proceedings, you got to do that after the divorce. A lot of people never get around to doing that or they don't know how to do it or they have a bad lawyer. So I say we have tools that we have not been using and we need to start using those tools. Your partner, if they don't want to talk to you about that, if you can't have open and you know com- completely transparent conversations with their your partner before you get married and after you get married, then you need to think about that. Mm-hmm. They should not want you to be at a financial disadvantage if you make decisions for the family. Right. So I think that's a very specific thing to women that we don't really talk about very much and I think you know we need to we need to really cuz women are living longer. They're living longer than their spouses. They live about 5 years longer. And that means they need more money in retirement. Mm-hmm. It also means that they probably have more medical expenses down the road cuz they're living longer. And if for some reason they have a gray divorce like I did, I was lucky. My story could have ended very, very badly. And I was, you know, I found a job and I, you know, okay, I came back. But if you, you know, get divorced, you, you might be entitled to some of your ex-spouse's social security if you were married to them for 10 years and you don't get remarried again, but it's only going to be half of what they get. And your retirement can, could be very bad if you haven't Mm -hmm. prepared Mm -hmm. for all this stuff through doing things for, the family and those that you care for. So those are the things I think are really specific to women and, and they need to, and we need to really be focusing on that and talking about it a lot more.
0: Yeah. That's, that's great advice. Definitely something that we don't always want to think about, but so, so important. And I love everything that you've given today in terms of, you know, from the things that we can start doing right now, focusing on our budget, making sure we have a good sense of that. To the skills that we need to develop those negotiating skills to, you know, the, the longer term, just kind of risk mitigation, I guess you would say. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's, it's really about risk management, just being strategic and, and not being embarrassed uh, about having conversations. It doesn't mean that you don't love somebody as much as you would if you didn't have the conversation. There's no Prince Charming, no fairy godmother. You need to be in control of this. And, and we as women cannot be apologetic about having these conversations with our significant others. It does not make us a shrew or a nasty woman.
0: Mm-hmm. It makes
1: us smart and leaders of our life.
0: Exactly. Well, speaking of leadership, we we have one question that we've asked all our guests on this season. And that is what's the one leadership lesson that you feel most passionate about passing on, whether that be to your clients or your kids or those that you lead informally or formally?
1: Well, it's kind of like what I just said. I am a true believer in being one's authentic self and Mm -hmm. embracing your authenticity and leading by example. If I say to people, have a budget, then I have a budget. Mm -hmm. If I say to people, make sure you advocate for yourself. I advocate for myself. And I also, if I am going to have a company, I try to, you know, and I do like through the fiscal feminist LLC, which is a separate company from my wealth management. You know, I have a lot of women that work with me as consultants and, you know, I lead by example, there are a lot of them are mothers and Mm -hmm. they work remotely and they work part-time and they have schedules that have to be changed and accommodated guess what? We still get all the work done brilliantly. So, you know, be empathetic, try to understand and listen to the people that you're leading. So you need, you know, exactly what their situation is and you can figure out a way to get the most productivity out of them and make them feel the best about their situation. And that's pretty much in my mind, what good leaders do. You can't lead by, you know, declaration and, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. just being a bossy boots. And I do think that that's what women are really good at. They're more empathetic. They listen and they want to know how they can help you help yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Definitely. Well, this has been great. And I'm sure a lot of women in our audience would love to learn more. So where can they find out? more about you, about The Fiscal Feminist, and about your work?
1: Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. So like I said, I've written a book called The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. You can pre-order it on um, Amazon, and it will be out on May 31st. It really is like a roadmap, a comprehensive roadmap that addresses all of these issues and gives you tools of how to actually accomplish what I would like you to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Even if you do one chapter every two months, (laughs) I'll be happy with that. And then I've also have a pretty nice following on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook, but Instagram is our primary platform. It's at the fiscal feminist on Instagram. We have a lot of tips there. We've got a lot of stuff that, you know, I, I post about everything under the sun from financial stuff, investing stuff, you know, career. I mean, I, I approach all issues, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all there. And also, they there are resources that we give you links to through the Instagram postings. I have just launched um, a website called www.thefiscalfeminist.com. That's only been going for a couple of weeks, but on that right now, you can if you you know a lot of people don't have the resources to become a wealth management client of mine, but if they want to book a consultation for an hour or book a three financial athlete session consultation with me we can do that i can go through their personal finances or whatever they want to talk about investment mm-hmm. strategy career development i'm happy to do that so they can book a consultation on there eventually we're going to have courses on there that can be purchased for exactly how to do all the things i'm talking about but in a step-by-step way oh, wonderful um All my blogs and media stuff are there as well. So, those are pretty much the. And then, also, if people just want to see what I'm doing as a wealth manager, they can find that at the bond at www.thebonsongroup.com, where I'm a managing director and partner. So, all of those are. Where you can find me.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, we'll make sure it's all linked in the show notes so that people can find it easily. But thank you again for spending the time with us today and sharing your experiences and your expertise. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I really appreciate being invited. Women who are moms are something I'm just super passionate about. I mean, I I'm so blessed to have my three children, and we made it through this journey, and we were super close and My kids um, always say that, you know, I inspire them and that's all I can. They they make me want to be the best version of myself every Mm -hmm. day. So we're doing a great thing for the world by being moms, but we can also do a whole lot of other things and we need to protect ourselves. So on that, I say, let's, let's all join the fiscal sisterhood and take care of ourselves. And thank you so much, Terry. (laughs)
0: I hope you enjoyed that mix of both short-term actions that we can take right now and long-term planning that we can do to move beyond fear when it comes to our financial well-being. Be sure to follow Kimberly on social media and go pre-order her book, The Fiscal Feminist. Join us next week as we focus on career well-being and speak to the savvy working mom herself, Whitney Hawthorne. Until next time, lead with love.